get your car washed because it's probably dirty right now. Whether it's you know washing all the germs out, you want to get obviously the germs out of your car, but also you want it to look really nice. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. It's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's. And guess what? They have an app. It's the Tommy Club app. So download it. I know you have a smartphone, so you're going to be able to download apps. You don't have a flip phone if you're listening to this podcast. I'm just assuming that. And if you do, more power to you. But if you do, then you're missing out on this great deal. Because if you download the Tommy Club app today, you're going to enjoy endless washing for one low price. Endless washing for one low price at Tommy's Express Car Wash. That's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane at Tommy's. Unlimited access to all the Tommy's locations. And there are a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. Most importantly, unlimited happiness. That's a Tommy's Express Car Wash. We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F- that. You don't got time for that. All right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. What's up? This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. The KU defense has, I don't want to say fallen off a cliff, from where they were because, you know, the expectations weren't still that this was going to be a dominant defense. You still had strides to be gained from last year. You gave up 46 points per game a season ago. But from where it looked like in week one, which, you know, obviously came against an FCS opponent, which we're learning more and more now, matters a lot more. Though we probably knew that beforehand. But overall, the defense did look really good in that first game against South Dakota. And ever since then, it's been a struggle, to say the least, for this Kansas defense. You give up 14 points to South Dakota, and then you allow 49 to Coastal Carolina, 45 to Baylor, and over 50 to Duke. So now you're at a point where if you're just viewing FBS games, you're allowing more points per game so far through three FBS games than you did last year when you only played FBS opponents. But if you do include the South Dakota game, it knocks that average down to 40, which still you were hoping for a little more improvement there, although that is about a touchdown better, but not against the FBS competition. It's not a pretty sight when you look at the numbers or the grades, as you would imagine. You just gave up over 600 yards to a Duke offense that if you're looking at like the ESPN SP plus, which rates offensive efficiency is below average in terms of the overall country in their offensive efficiency. I mean, they're below the 60 mark, which would there's 60, 65 teams would be halfway. So kind of below average in that range. KU is just 127th in yards allowed per play. They're 125th in points allowed per game. To this point, here are their pro football focus grade ranks. 116th in total defense, 108th in rush defense grade, 99th in tackling grade, 117th in pass coverage grade, and 97th in 
pass rush grade, which was the thing that not necessarily the pass rush, but specifically the defensive line was something that was touted well as being maybe the best defensive position group. I still think it is and played the best maybe against South Dakota, but they just haven't been able to impact things as much against better competition. And part of it too goes back to, and this is something Brian Borland talked about, which we'll play for you uh, later on. The idea that you have to get into those pass rushing situations, whether it's the time and score of the game, if you're down 14 with five minutes left, they're not going to be passing the ball, but also it's a situational thing, right? They're on third and two. You can't just pin your ears back and go rush the passer. You have to be ready for a running play. You have to be ready for this or that. Uh, you need to get them in the third and eight and, and third and nine, and the defense has struggled to do that so far, which I think goes back a little bit to how much they've struggled at the linebacking position. Here is Lance Leipold, what he said earlier this week as far as the defensive concerns right now. Well, I, I again, holistically of breakdowns and certain things, there's, um, I've, I've said it all along is um, – I'd say if there's one, we we just we also need to tackle better. I, I think there, you know, we we can all point out the times where, um, you know, somebody's cut loose and they're wide open and or something like that. It's, but there's also the points of of physicality and tackling well and tackling fundamentally well and and uh, yards after contact and things like that. And and a lot of that comes with experience. It comes with strength. It comes with confidence to play downhill it's confidence in the in the scheme that they're still learning and understanding to really let it loose um but uh you know at the same time i there's certain individuals that that continue to play well and play hard and and i'm not saying the guys aren't playing hard so i should be careful how i say that but there's some there's a you know there's times on on both sides of the ball where we'll have a big play and later on or something, the same look happens in a certain way and we don't play it the same way. And, uh, and then we get hurt by that. And uh, so, again, we've got to just be more consistent. And the, the one play that sticks out the most from that Duke game was the play where you have a potential sack, Gavin Potter leaks in, it's going to turn into a down in, in distance that's going to be unfavorable for Duke. And instead, instead of just wrapping up and making a secure tackle, it's just like a slap down on the shoulder pads. Quarterback gets away, throws it to the flats, and uh, Durant, the running back, scoots free for like a 40, 50-yard gain. That, to me, was maybe the biggest difference play in the game because at that point, I think it was either, I want to say it was 28 to 27, Duke at that point. And if you get the sack there, maybe you end up stopping them and you get the ball back down a point and you avoid Duke going on that big run that we've seen hurt KU so much in the third quarters of games. So what has happened to this defense since then? I mean, I, I think it's a couple things. One, you're just playing better competition. Two, teams are finding better ways to exploit maybe this linebacking core and the lack of tackling and the young secondary and other issues as well. But I also think that, you know, it still is obviously a schematic adjustment and it still is an adjustment for KU and just a progression adjustment of trying to get better, trying to get stronger and having to work on things that typically you wouldn't work on during a game week, like the tackling, like getting to know the scheme, like internal evaluation. You know, if all all things were right, you would be spending more time just scouting the opponent and figuring out their tendencies to try to line up your defense with that. 
but you don't have that ability right now. And there's just a lack of disruption, a lack of chaos. You only had one tackle for loss. You had no sacks against Duke. I think the D-line still is solid, at least comparatively to those other positions, but that inexperience in the secondary and the void you have at that linebacker position just really creates a hole in this defense. And outside of the South Dakota game, so the past three games for the Jayhawks and all their games against FBS competition, Kansas has forced an opponent to fourth down on their first series all of just six times this season. That's it. Six times in those three games where they've forced an opponent to fourth down on the first series of their drive, basically a three and out. And if you base it on getting a team to truly three and out, as opposed to they they went for it on fourth down and got it, so as in they took three downs, didn't get it, and had to punt it away, it's happened just five times in the last three games. And one of those was even with Duke already up 52-33 to 33 with 47 seconds left. So really, there are only four times that it's happened where it's really mattered. I don't really have a comparative stat for other teams to tell you that, yeah, only being able to three and out somebody truly four times over the course of three games is really bad because Alabama's done it this amount of times, and this is the worst in the country. But here's what I can tell you. I went back and looked at the Baylor game. Baylor forced Kansas into a three and out six times in that just one game. KU's done it four times with their defense against opposing offenses in the last three games. So the issues boil down to a few things for me. One, again, you're just playing better competition. Two, you're missing too many tackles. Three, the players just aren't good enough right now overall. And four, at the end of the day, you still are learning a new scheme on the fly. And so with all those questions and all the issues that have led to that, I don't know how many of those are going to be correctable over the course of the season. This, like many other things for this team, seems more like something that might take till the offseason to figure out. And for that reason, as encouraging as the defense was in week one, as much as it struggled in the next three games, I'm not really expecting things to completely change from what we've seen these past couple games, especially your inability to even stop the run that makes you think, even if we play a one-dimensional offense, we're going to completely shut them down. And for that reason, if KU is going to win another game this year, it's going to probably have to be on the backs of the offense, putting up 30, 40 points in a game and having one of those big explosive games, which they kind of did against Duke. So that is kind of the glass half full version of it. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 at 1320 KLWN, depending on it. Could your business use a little push right now? Need help getting the word out there that you're hiring? Do you just want to let people know how great of a product you have? Well, you can advertise with Rock Chalk Sports Talk and or the Best of RCST podcast. For more information, contact djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. Welcome back in. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson. CJ Moore of The Athletic just wrote, uh, a really good piece on Kansas last week, and uh, I highly recommend you go check that out. I know they're having a deal right now in The Athletic. It's worth the price of admission just for CJ alone, but you're also going to get really good content elsewhere as well. Uh, so, CJ, you know, this is something you talked about in the piece with the fact that this maybe could end up being a deeper KU rotation 
than normal. And we've seen it so often under Bill Self that by the time you get to tournament time, it might narrow down to seven guys, maybe eight. But at least for the regular season this year, how many guys are you expecting night in, night out to kind of be a part of that rotation? Well, my answer is probably inevitably going to be more than it ends up being, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, if you just if you just go through the roster, like, you know, Yusef is going to play, Brown's going to play, Harris is going to play, Jalen Wilson, Remy Martin, there's five. Um, you know, Ochai is going to play six, Cam Martin, David McCormick, there's eight, Jalen Coleman lands, there's nine pretty easily that I think are going to play. And then, you know, there's another couple of guys like Bobby Pettiford, uh, maybe KJ Adams, Zach Clements that, you know, I think will have a chance to, to get a little bit of run. So um, what I think I named like 12 guys <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't even name Mitch Lightfoot, who's a, a uh, 10th year senior. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I think he'll try to play like nine, 10 at times. Um, but you know, you could get to a point where he just rolls with like seven or eight because that's, that's how self, Bill Self usually rolls. But, um, I do think he'll try to play more at, at least in their early games when they play crummy competition, like he'll see if a deep rotation can really work. Yeah. And I know that, you know, at least from my end, when we're just looking for things to talk about in the off season and, uh, from some fans perspective, there are a couple topics and storylines that feel like it it gets brought up every offseason about, well, could this be the year that they do extend the rotation or could this be the year that they play a little bit more zone defense? And and most often that stuff doesn't end up happening. But if mm-hmm. they do end up deepening that bench and playing more guys, as you alluded to, with this maybe being the best opportunity to do that, I know John Rothstein mentioned this yesterday. He was at practice, and you mentioned this in the article, that maybe they'd be more willing to, to do some things like, full-court pressing. That doesn't mean they'd be West Virginia necessarily, but uh, certainly experimenting with different styles of play. How how do you think deepening the rotation would kind of impact how it would look on the court? Yeah, I don't think it's, I don't know if it's necessarily press, but I do think it's like really, really applying pressure, um, you know, more so than they have. And that can just look, you know, that can just be in the half court. But yeah, I think it's it's maybe getting out and extending a little bit defensively. Um, you know, everybody's always going to say they're going to try to pick up the pace offensively, but I think KU is going to kind of run what KU runs, and um, you know, maybe that looks some years it looks a little faster than others, and this could be a year just because of a guy like Remy Martin that it looks a little faster than others. But for the most part, they're going to run what they're going to run. So I think yeah, where that shows up the most is probably on defensive end. And and you mentioned that defensive end and, and Bill Self saying this team could, could possibly be better defensively. And it's interesting because, uh, you, I, I don't know, I felt like going into the offseason, like I was looking at the roster and thinking, well, you lose your, your obviously all-defensive player in, in Marcus Garrett, and you look at players like, I don't know, Remy Martin, Christian Brown, David McCormick, who... Um, I don't think they're bad defenders or anything, but I wouldn't view them as like these plus plus defenders. So, so why do you think with this personnel necessarily, where you don't necessarily have the Yudoka Azubuki, Jeff Withy shot eraser, you don't have the Marcus Garrett perimeter guy? Do you think he is so high on them defensively? 
I think because he has so much length and, and athleticism, and, and I think the guys that um, you know were a big part of what they did last year, Ochai and um, Jalen Wilson and, and um, Christian Brown, like I think those guys have maybe gotten a little quicker and more athletic. And so I think he looks at his length that he can throw out there and the different speed lineups he can throw out there and maybe has a little bit more defensive versatility um, than they than they had last year where – um, but you know, we have to remember that like, I, I hit this on the piece, like, you know, second half of the year, there was a stretch there where, and, and I've run the numbers and, and had this in one of my stories last year, like they were performing better than any defense in the country. So, um, it's not like they were bad defensively last year or that it was just all Marcus Garrett. I think he was a big part of it. So yeah, I guess that's a little surprising considering you're taking Garrett out of the mix. who was a you know, dynamic, awesome, awesome defender. But I I just think as a collective whole, he he sees, um, you know, having better defenders all around minus, minus just, you know, taking away Marcus is a big, big takeaway there. Yeah. I just, I just think that's very interesting because my initial thought a few months ago when the roster was put together was that this would be a better offensive team and a worse Mm -hmm. defensive team. But I don't know, like you look at Bart Torvik and, and that site has him, I think, top 10 preseason in both. So if the defense does end up being good, I don't know, because I, I've kind of viewed the offense as being, you know, it's going to take some time for everybody to to kind of mesh with each other and, and learn how to play with each other. But when I see what this offense could be, and if you're telling me the defense is going to be good, I, I'm having a hard time finding a reason not to be optimistic about how good this team can be overall. Yeah, they, they they should be pretty good. I, I think it's as I kind of hit on the piece. I think it's going to come down to how good is it, is the offense. Like, is it actually a lead, or is it just you know gradually better than it was a year ago? Talking with CJ Moore of the Athletic here on Rock Shock Sports Talk. If David McCormick were to add something to his game this year that could move him from being a guy who was an All Big Twelve player a season ago to one that is being viewed as like an All-American. I don't necessarily mean first-team All-American, but in that discussion of that first, second, third team, uh, what would that be for you? Uh, I would think it would become becoming a more dominant defensive force. And um, I thought he got better. I thought he made big strides second half of the year. Um, but, you know, if he can block some more shots and just become a more dynamic um, defender who can, you know, do do a lot of different things, switching and that kind of stuff. Um, now, now, do I think that's in David McCormick's future? Do like, do I see him being like you don't get like that? Probably not. But, but I think that's that's something that could take him to another level and make him a more <clears throat> a player that the you know NBA scouts are more interested in is, is if he can make a real leap defensively. Is is there one guy on the team that you view as maybe the most likely All American candidate? Would it be Dave, or, or would it be somebody else? Um, I mean McCormick. Yeah, I think it's probably the answer somewhere between McCormick, Remy Martin, and and Ochai. Um, I don't think they necessarily have an All American on this team, but those would be the three guys that that might have a shot. If KU plays Cam Martin next to David McCormick at all, would that be concerning on the defensive end of the floor? Do you think they can kind of insulate that? And and do you even expect that to happen? I think you can hide guys. And and I also think it, it, you know, it'll depend what the other teams have on the floor. 
um, you know, maybe self throws that lineup, that lineup when he sees that, you know, we can, we can guard this other team like that. And when you bring up zone, you know, if, if they're going to play that line, that lineup, maybe that, that's when they go to zone zone. Like he, while he rarely, rarely plays zone, you saw last year that he was willing to, to bust it out. And, and Bill Self's one of those coaches that like, he's willing to do anything to win. Like he's, he's going to, um, you know, if he's got to throw out a triangle and two, he'll throw out a triangle and two. So, um, he'll do some different things defensively to, to, you know, help his personnel succeed. So that, that could be something you maybe see, but I do think most of their lineups are going to be the small ball lineups again. Uh, yesterday, um, or maybe it was a couple of days ago, uh, Bill Self brought up the fact that Dewan Harris, um, right now, Remy Martin obviously kind of coming back from injury, that Dewan might be the favorite to be a starter. And it's not that, again, with Remy Martin coming back from injury, you expect Remy Martin to be on the bench or anything. Um, but I think it was more so telling from an angle of looking at Dewan Harris and the growth that he has had coming into this season. Uh, as, as far as that kind of like, backup point guard role or, or the secondary guard role that we know self kind of wants to get back to this season. How, how do you view that shaking out with Dewan Harris, uh, Joe Yesifu and the other two freshmen that are coming in in uh, Cuff and Pettiford? Well, I think ultimately like Remy Martin's going to be the guy that starts. And, um, but I do think like, like you said, I think it was telling and what, how they feel about Dewan and, and the progress he's made and, um, you know, I, I think if I've heard about one guy more so than any other this offseason, man, he's really getting better. It's it's Dewan Harris. So um, excited to see you know what he looks like this year, and and he's he's going to have like a real role and and be part of the rotation. I think that's pretty clear. Like there's some guys that you're like, uh, I don't know, maybe he plays, maybe he doesn't. But I think Dewan Harris is a guy that's that's definitely going to play, and you know, it's probably fine coming off the bench. Like that's not going to hurt his feelings at all. So I asked you the question about what would Dave's game look like if if he hit that next level. What is that that you're kind of looking at for Dewan Harris that would change his game? Is it is it from being more aggressive as a scorer? Is it just kind of improving on and, and doing the things he's already doing well to a better level? What does that look like for Dewan Harris? I think it's actually being a little bit more of a scoring threat. Not you know he's never going to be a big time scorer, but just a little more of a threat, being more willing to to step up and hit a jumper. And he showed he could at times last year but he was very hesitant to pull the trigger right and um you know being able to drive to score and, and not just drive to pass always so that would be one of them and the other thing is like there were times d- defensively where guys could just overpower him and, and he was just too small out there and so i think you know being able to, to be a little stronger holding his own a little bit better on the defensive end would be something else that that he could help himself with Talking with C.J. Moore of The Athletic, a few more minutes here on RCST. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, when the casino in Las Vegas released some over-under win totals for college basketball teams, and it includes the postseason, the over-under win total number for Kansas was set at 28.5, which they have 31 or 31 um, regular season games, and then you would have the Big 12 tournament, NCAA tournament factored in there as well. Uh, any thoughts on that number being set at 28 and a half? 28 and a half. Well, let's, let's see here. Let's look at uh, Bill Sell. Um, a couple of years ago, they played, they won 28 without a postseason. Yeah, they would have got there with the postseason. And, you know, a majority of years, he's over 30. 
So I think that's probably a fair number, and, and I'll, I'll say I'll, I'll go ahead and take the over. I mean, if you just look at his last three seasons, two of those weren't very good. And, you know, two years ago in 2019 when they weren't great, they won 26. So um, I'd say i go over, although the Big 12 is going to be really, really tough and, and deep. So that, that that would be my one hesitation, I guess, because the league is going to be so good. But I'll, uh, I'll say the over. I think that's about probably a fair line. Yeah, if you can go, I'm trying to think, 10-3 and three in the non-conference and then you get to – 13 and 5 in Big 12 play that puts you at 23 wins and then you need 6 uh, that'd be a lot but if you could get up yeah. to 11 and 2 in the non-con 14 and 4 in Big 12 play at that point you're sitting pretty because then you just need basically two wins in the Big 12 tournament two wins in the NCAA tournament and I think that's what I factored it out to be basically if you can go 29 and 8 to where you make the Big 12 championship game and you make the sweet 16 that would be an over I just my biggest worry with this team, and this is something self touched on a couple of days ago, was the fact that, you know, they're practice ready right now, but they're not really game ready and, and he doesn't really know what he's gonna do with the rotations and the lineups and who's gonna play well together and everything. I just wonder if this is gonna be one of those teams where maybe it's a little slower to start off and maybe you do get upset in a couple of these non conference games where they're gonna be a favorite against Michigan State, but you lose to them in a game because you're still just trying to figure stuff out and then all of a sudden come January or February, you hit that hot streak. Yeah, it's possible. Um, but they do have, you know, the, the, the schedule to start isn't like gargantuan. You know, Michigan State's probably going to be the worst team at the Champions Classic. And then Tarleton State, Stony Brook, and then you open the ESPN Invitational with, with North Texas, who was good last year and has a really, really good coach in Grant McCaslin, but – um, you know, okay, you should be able to, to out ta- talent them, you would think. Um, that is a team that beat Purdue, who's going to be like a top 10, top five, maybe preseason. So um, that's no gimme by any means. But yeah, I, I, I think that uh, I don't see more than a couple, maybe losses in the non conference. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Who knows? But um, I, that's probably a fair number. All right, real quick before I let you go, I think this is the first time we talked since uh, the Big 12 realignment stuff. Uh, obviously, you're going to be losing out on a Bill Self-Chris Beard uh, budding rivalry with Texas moving on to the SEC. Of the four schools that are coming in, who do you think is going to make for the most pesky opponent for KU and who is going to make for maybe the best kind of, not rivalry, but uh, best matchup year in and year out, similar to what we saw for so many years with Rick Barnes and Bill Self between KU and Texas? Uh, I mean, I'd probably just go with Houston because of Kelvin Sampson, right? Like, his teams are always going to be really, really good and hard to play. Um, so those games could be fun. Um, but BYU be, a, like, the 1B just because <laughs> I think Mark Pope is really, really good and his teams play a fun style. So uh, those games, you know, from an entertainment standpoint, like – those might be the most entertaining games and, and um, as far as against the, the new schools. Um, you know, Cincinnati could be fun, too. West Miller could really get it going there. I'm, I'm, I'm confident those three teams coming in are going to be pretty good. Now, Central Florida, I think, is probably going to be at the bottom of the league like, yeah, every single year. Yeah, they, they feel like the, the TCU to me. BYU is the one I was thinking of there uh, just because I could see that being like the West Virginia where it's like every time we go out there, we can't beat them for whatever reason. You have the mountain, uh, the, the altitude and everything, and it's just different. Yeah. 
Well, that is CJ Moore of The Athletic. Subscribe. Check out all his great work over the course of this season. Uh, CJ, thank you so much for the time as always, man. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right, that was CJ Moore of The Athletic joining us here on RockChalkSports.com. Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. One hour down, two to go. Four o'clock hour, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I am Derek Johnson. Jordan Gusky of the Topeka Capital Journal is going to join us at 440 here. And I don't know, a lot to live up to for Jordan, you know. Pressure with uh, Matt Galloway no longer at the Capital Journal. Jordan is the new man on the job. And I won't just have, you know, KU football and KU basketball questions. I'll have the hard-hitting questions for Jordan. Do you like movies, right? You know, can you fill in the shoes of Matt Galloway? So we'll find out that with uh, Jordan Gusky coming up in about 35 minutes from right now. But first... Baseball is going on. Yeah, that's right. Maybe football season. Basketball season around the corner for KU with Late Night in the Fog this Friday. Baseball still ongoing. Baseball very entertaining at the end of this season right now. And I'd be remiss to not start this without saying Joe West is retiring at the end of the year. How did we not end up with a Joe West retirement tour, but we are winding up with a Coach K retirement tour? I would much rather have the Joe West retirement tour where everywhere Joe West goes like he gets these dumb gifts from both managers before the game and then during the game like the managers are just screaming at him I would much rather have that than a Coach K retirement tour but uh yeah we bid you adieu in a week I don't know maybe Joe West will be umpiring playoff games too but at most in like a month and a half we'll bid Joe West to do uh Royals notes Michael A. Taylor Signed a two-year, $9 million deal yesterday. Interesting for a couple reasons. Taylor has been elite defensively. I mean, by certain metrics, he has been the best defensive center fielder in the MLB this year. So you're getting that, two years, $9 million. That's not an overly amount of, uh, of, of dollars there. Makes it really good. But also, you know, even though two years, $9 million isn't that much in, in the baseball grand scheme of things, you're seeing this trend of players who are kind of borderline serviceable that have been getting these like one or two million dollar deals that are getting these deals that involve like minor league level contracts that you basically have to work your way up to the majors. And I think it was Yolmer Sanchez who won like a gold glove at second base for the White Sox a couple years ago. And he got only a minor league contract from the San Francisco Giants and never really made it up. I figured that would be more of the case for Michael A. Taylor, but this is what the Royals like to do. We saw it with, like, Mike Minor, and, you know, they want to lock that up. They want to get a good defensive center fielder in the big park that Kauffman Stadium is, which makes sense. But here's the problem. Michael A. Taylor, very uh, subpar with the bat in hand. He's got a 650 OPS this year. For his career OPS, he has only surpassed 700. Usually league average is around 720, 730, 740. He's only surpassed 700 once in his eight-year career. That's not great. But if he's only hitting eighth or ninth in the Royals lineup every day, then it's not a big deal. Now, if he's going to be asked to be hitting at the top of the order, sixth or fifth in the lineup, that's where it's the problem. But if he's only hitting eighth or ninth, 
and he's providing that elite of defense in center field, it'll end up being a good contract. Otherwise, you're going to be scratching your head going, really? David Lesky pointed this out also in a Royals note. Uh, the Royals bullpen since the all-star break, break sixth in baseball in ERA, first in FIP, first in F war, and sixth in average fastball velocity. It's been quite the turnaround for the Royals bullpen. And I just wonder now, as, as you're starting to see these pieces come together, right? You see some of the young pitchers come up this year, struggle, but maybe lead you to believe in certain instances, sh show certain flashes of potential that, hey, they can be a viable pitching staff as soon as next year, right? Like Carlos Hernandez has been a solid pitcher already this season. And if Carlos Hernandez takes another step forward next year, Daniel Lynch, Jackson Kowar, Brady Singer, all those guys take steps up next year. Maybe you go out and sign a frontline guy like David Lesky was projecting, a guy like Chris Bassett. Uh, I think you'd have to trade for Chris Bassett, but you make a trade or, or you sign somebody. Then all of a sudden, it starts to come into place there. You feel good about the defense with Michael A. Taylor and, um, you know, whatever the infield is going to look like with the combination of, of middle infielders. Nick Lopez, Whit Merrifield, and uh, Bobby Witt potentially coming up. You feel good about the speed of the team. If the young prospects do come up, then you feel good about the power with guys like Bobby Witt, Nick Prado, and MJ Melendez, at least once they're up, maybe not before they're up. It's starting to come together a little bit, and the bullpen performing like this in the second half of the season is something that if that carries over, all of a sudden now maybe you do have a little bit more complete of a team than you might have thought, and if you do add a couple big signees or, like I said, the frontline starter and maybe add another bullpen arm and maybe you add a position player, and then maybe all of a sudden that combined with some of the young players coming up is enough for you to be competitive next year, is enough for you to make a push. And I think that this second half is it's a cautious approach, but it's one that can give you enough hope to think that maybe that carries over into next year. Now, we've seen this before where they've been out of it, and they've had a good second half when it hasn't mattered and it hasn't turned into a better season the next year. So that's the cautious approach to it. That's the wariness of it. But I think that if this is the trend you're going on, you're going to like where that's going, and both of those are good signs moving forward. And I think uh, another sign that you like is you view a team like the Seattle Mariners right now and what they're doing with a team who wasn't expected to contend this season, but has stuck around, even though they haven't been a team who's had like a great run differential. They've been feisty. They've had some good breaks go their way. They've had young players come up and perform well. Logan Gilbert uh, performs really well last night. Their young stud pitching prospect, Jared Kelenic, is really starting to get it going. A top five prospect when he came up and had really, really struggled all season long, but is starting to figure it out. And they're now in the thick of things in the playoff race. That's kind of your hope there for the Royals. But speaking of that Mariners team, this AL wildcard race is going to be absolutely bananas down the finish. Right now, Tampa Bay and the White Sox have both secured their divisions. Houston is like a win away, I'm, I'm pretty sure, from securing the AL West because they're up three and a half on, on the Mariners and there's four games to go. So that seems likely they're going to clinch it. But the AL wildcard is going to be bananas. I don't know if you remember that 2011 season win. It was down to the last day, and you had the Red Sox and the Rays and the Yankees all fighting for positioning, and it was crazy. You had the Rays crawl back from a big deficit to the Yankees, and then they got down to their last strike in the last out. Evan Longoria hit 
or it wasn't Evan Longoria. Somebody hit a game-tying home run, and then an extras, Evan Longoria hit the game-winning home run, and the Rays came back to beat the Yankees. The Orioles ended up coming back and, I think, defeating the Red Sox, and the Rays got into playoffs and the wild card because it was a crazy final day, one of the best final days we've had. We could be trending that way this year, but we also could not only be trending that way this year, but we could be trending toward a couple game 163s this season, which are always exciting to have multiple of those one-game eliminations. Right now, the New York Yankees are in first of the AL wildcard. They're a game up on the second wildcard, which is the Boston Red Sox. The Red Sox, as the second wildcard, are only half a game up on the Mariners, only a game up on the Toronto Blue Jays. If you want to get really crazy, the A's are four and a half back right behind them. If the A's won out from here and like everybody lost, then yeah, it'd get crazy. But most likely the A's are kind of screwed here. Um, but you could have realistically like a four-way tie for two wildcard spots between the Yankees, Red Sox, Mariners, and Blue Jays. And you may be wondering, well, how do they do that? Of course, if two teams tie for a division lead or if two teams tie for one spot, unless it's the wild card, if they tie for the wild card, they just say, hey, you had the same record. Whoever has the better head-to-head and, you know, down the line or if that's tied, divisional record or league record, whatever it is, then you'll just get home field advantage. But if it's like two wild cards tied for the second wild card, they'd play one game 163. And the team with the better, again, tiebreaker there would get the home game for the game 163 to determine the second wild card. Well, if there's three teams, you obviously can't do a round robin where you say, you play you, you play you, then you play you. We've done three games. Oh, no, everybody's one one You can't do that. So what they do, they have a special tiebreaker where they have, like, slots. There's, like, Team A, Team B, Team C. And they go through, and if, this is if it's a three-team tiebreaker, and it's based on, again, those head-to-heads and whatever tiebreaker you can get to determine who has pick one, who has pick two, pick three. And it's basically a, a, a fantasy draft where the team with the best you know, tiebreaker there gets to pick first. Do they want team slot A, team slot B, or team slot C? And what happens is team A will play team B, the winner of that would get in. And then you would have, and this would be if there were three teams tied for two spots, they would automatically get one of them. And then the loser of Team A, Team B would play Team C, and the winner of that would get in. So do you go with taking a slot in Team A if you have the first pick, where if you you would get basically two chances at making it into the wildcard game because you just have to win one of two? Or do you take your chances as Team C to where you only get one shot to win the game, you only get one shot to make it in the wild card, but you're going to be playing the loser of the first game and you're not going to have to exhaust yourself with two games. It's quite the dilemma and it gets very interesting. Or if you do get four teams who tie for those two spots, they would basically just do like, it'd be like two wild cards. It'd be a semifinal round. They'd have Team A play Team D, Team B play Team C, and then they would just... The winners of each would play each other in the actual wildcard game. It could get absolutely crazy, and I hope we have a crazy finish. And watching what the Mariners have done, they have a minus 48 run differential this year. By comparison, the Rockies are at minus 49. The Mets are at minus 36. The uh, Cleveland soon-to-be Guardians are minus 19. The Detroit Tigers even are around there at minus 57. And the Mariners might be a playoff team. The Oakland A's have a have a over 100 runs better run differential than the Seattle Mariners, but they're four games behind them right now. Mariners are on fire. They've won 10 of their last 11 games. They're exciting to watch. 
I hope because Seattle hasn't been to the playoffs since the season which they they broke the win record. I forget if that was 2001 or 2003. I'd love to see them back in there. Would love to see Toronto in there. You know, if you get Toronto, Seattle instead of New York, Boston, which we're so used to, that'd be uh, pretty darn cool. But either way, that finish is going to be exciting. The NL West finish is going to be exciting where you have two teams who have over 102 wins right now this season. It's going to be an exciting finish to the end of the MLB season, and we're going to probably have some extra games for it next week. The last thing in the baseball breakdown here, Devin Williams, who is a really good relief pitcher for the Milwaukee Brewers, he typically is their eighth inning guy. Josh Hader closes for them. Williams won NL Rookie of the Year last year, though. I mean, he has this elite changeup. Uh, they call it the airbender because it just moves in the... It's almost like a knuckle change. I, it, it moves in crazy ways. It's really hard to hit. He's had a fantastic season again, backing up what he did last year in the shortened season, and he is a big part of what makes the Brewers so good, but good because they have about a, a league average offense, but they've won 95 games on the back of the pitching staff paired with about a league average offense because you have with Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, Freddie Peralta, those are three legit frontline starting pitchers. And then you have good depth behind it as well. And then in the, the bullpen, you do have Josh Hader, who's maybe the best closer in the game. Devin Williams is one of the best eighth inning guys in the game. So you combine the starting pitching with that and it's just, it's lights out, especially for a postseason format where you're only going to use maybe three starters in an opener. And that's what they're going to be able to do. And then if your starter goes seven innings, you have the eighth, ninth inning guy, boom, you're done. Well, Devin Williams, not going to be pitching in the postseason. The reason why, the Brewers, when they won the division, clinched the division, had a bit of a party, as you'd imagine. Some drinks were slugged back. Devin Williams maybe had a little too many cocktails or beers or whatever his drink of choice was. And they haven't released what caused him to be angry, but... He got angry enough that he punched a wall. And in the process of punching a wall, Devin Williams broke his hand. So now Devin Williams, one of the most important pieces to the Brewers to try to win a World Series, is now out. And Devin Williams could, I don't know, that could cost the Brewers. Like, it is such a... a fine line of margin for error when you're talking about this Brewers team and possibly having to face a team like the Giants or uh, the Atlanta Braves. That could be the difference. And this is the second case this year where a player has punched something. Jesus Lazardo, young, really good pitching prospect for the A's, was pitching with the team. He eventually got traded, and now he's with the Miami Marlins. Got angry over a video game. I don't know what video game it was. And punched, I forget if it was like the ceiling or the wall or a desk or a table or something. And he broke his hand. What is up with this? Stop punching things. Especially if you're, you know, if, whatever. If, you, if you're if you just some random guy and you're playing video games and you get mad about it and you have to punch something, okay, sure. But if you're a professional athlete and you need that hand to make millions of dollars to help your team win, stop punching things. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, teams are going to start negotiating in to their contracts. Maybe something like this is already there that would prevent uh, these situations from you having to pay the player or keep out of legality. But there's going to be, like, specific clauses negotiated by teams with agents. Hey, if you punch something and break your hand, sorry, we're not paying you for 
the time you're out. It's ludicrous to me that this keeps happening, that this happened to one of the Brewers' most important players literally right before they're going into the playoffs. All right, that's your baseball breakdown. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Jordan Gusky of the Topeka Capital Journal is going to join us in about 20 minutes from right now. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. We got a first time RCST guest now. That would be one Jordan Gusky, Topeka Capital Journal, and CJ Online. Uh, your previous cohort, Matt Galloway, used to join us on the show all the time. So let's get to know Jordan Gusky. I, I guess first, before I ask you some real KU questions, Jordan, uh, Let's get a little intro on Jordan, who, who, like I said, is is the new writer for the Capital Journal for the KUB. Jordan, thank you for making your RCST debut. So uh, what was your background before you came to the Lawrence area and started covering KU? Yeah, so um, I, I went to, to college at IU, and that's sort of where I got into to journalism there in Indiana, uh, and then ended up working for the Indianapolis Star, as well as um, Turner Sports, something about NCAA stuff, and then uh, uh, I got a job covering Ball State uh, up there a little bit, North Indianapolis uh, in Muncie for a couple of years, and uh, came to, to Lawrence from there. Um, yeah, so grew up in the Cincinnati area, but that's sort of how I, I got into journals and everything. And you know, outside of grew up in Cincinnati, spent a few years living in Japan. All right, that is that's quite the all over, especially the Japan part of it. Um, I don't even know where to begin on that. I guess Cincinnati. Now you're going to have the roots there with. The Big 12 adding Cincinnati back in Indiana. Yeah. You had the uh, another team who is got a rich basketball tradition. So you get that comparison. Ball State, you cover a team that um, I don't know when you were there, but Ball State's had some good years in football. So uh, just comparing that, uh, what you recently saw with Ball State, I guess in in your time just covering other football programs, uh, what do you kind of think from the outside looking in about KU football before you got to Lawrence and? And what are your thoughts now that you've been a little more fully immersed in everything? Yeah, um, I think mostly just a program that uh, you know, when you get if you get the right head coach in there who can really build it up um, to what it had been, you know, I think you know a little over a decade ago, going to to an Orange Bowl. I think you get the right coach in there, uh, it's a program that can really thrive. Um, and it seems like you know, uh, Lance could be that guy. I guess we'll see in time in the coming years. But I think that's sort of what I, I thought about it. I guess from afar, I really thought um, the Les Miles era would go differently. Uh, it just seemed like with this pedigree from LSU um, that uh, it would go really well. But I guess, um, you know, it, it obviously really didn't. Uh, I think uh, just, I guess, it, I guess it just wasn't the right hire. And, uh, and obviously that didn't go too well. But it seems like Lance is people pretty excited, and we'll see how it goes from here. Talking with Jordan Gusky of the Topeka Capital Journal here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Have you, over the course of this season, have you seen significant improvement in certain areas so far? Yeah, I think, you know, offensively just being able to get those, you know, those big plays I think was huge. Um, You know, obviously opens things up offensively. How Jason's progress has been big. Devin getting more carries and more looks has been big as well. Guys like Tory and Trevor uh, and Kwame offensively getting big plays. I think offensively you're seeing the growth there and in year one just what this offense can really be capable of. And, you know, even though defensively 
obviously since the the opener they've given up a ton of points each game but they're getting turnovers too um so there's at least you know some opportunity opportunistic uh edge to that defense and then it just needs to get more stops and you know this this program can be in a lot better spot as far as how you're evaluating um that progress that's being made over the course of this season and how you're kind of evaluating things from this Kansas team and how you think the coaches are evaluating things. Uh, what's your thought process on that? Yeah, I think um, in terms of how I'm evaluating things, it's just, you know, sort of what we've been talking about. Like, is there growth? Is there a reason to believe that, you know, as these years go on, that this year one can be a building block? I think that's sort of um, how I'm looking at this first year. And I would imagine the coaches in, in many respects are as well, you know, making decisions to try to win now, but also, I mean, you see how young this team is um, getting this, getting this, you know, roster experience that it doesn't have yet. Um, that could, you know, maybe not pay dividends as much this year, but definitely in, in year two, three, and four. Talking with Jordan Gusky here. Uh, Tory Lachlan had kind of a breakout game. Obviously, he's been a guy who had played a little bit here and there in the early portions of the season and, and come up with big plays, and you think back to the South Dakota game and so forth, but really the Duke game was the first time we got to see him kind of break out as a ball carrier, both in terms of the receiving touchdown from 20 yards out and in terms of his running ability as well. Uh, has Tory Lachlan, for you, been the coolest surprise of this team so far, or is there somebody else that comes to mind? Yeah, I think in terms of surprise, yeah, probably. Um, just because, obviously, he was you know electric in high school um, in Texas, and then since getting to Kansas, hadn't been you know, use a whole heck of a lot um, under the Les Miles era. But, you know, I, you know, like you mentioned there, had a really big game against Duke, sort of came onto the scene, had shown maybe flashes of it, but, you know, really played well against Duke. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think, at least in terms of offensively, definitely the, the coolest breakout player um, so far this season, uh, even in terms of, you know, not being expected, because I think we all expected Devin to have a pretty big freshman year. Uh, I'm assuming on Friday to switch gears over to basketball is going to be your first appearance in Allen Fieldhouse. Are, are you more excited for, for that, or are you more excited to see Run DMC? <laughs> um, I think, I guess I would have to say first time in, in Allen Fieldhouse, you know, in an actual event, not just going there for, for availabilities and stuff. So I think, yeah, I think more so excited just to, to get inside Allen Fieldhouse. Allen Fieldhouse, see that atmosphere with fans in the in the arena, uh, and you know, Run DMC is a nice bonus as well. Have you already thought about like the comparisons and, and contrasts you're going to be doing between Assembly Hall at Indiana versus Allen Fieldhouse? <laughs> yeah, I think um, I forget like the name of the event that IU does, um, but I think yeah, I've definitely been thinking this week um, how the two will compare. Uh, yeah, that's definitely been something that's on my mind. All right, I'm I'm going to have you on again next week, and and we're going to. Get your pro con list for the two of them. You know what's what's better here, what's better there, um, and I, I'm interested to hear what you say. I've, I've never been up to to IU to experience a game, but that's I'm sure on a lot of people's bucket list for uh, college basketball. Um, as far as the the basketball team uh, on on Friday is is there maybe a player you're most excited to see or, or most interested to see what they look like in a KU uniform on Friday night? Um, you know, I, I think David McCormick, um, just because, you know, from what I've, you know, seen and read, you know, I, he had sort of second half of last season really came on and then also, he, you know, he's coming back from an injury. I don't know. It just seems like uh, a player I'm really curious to, to see what he's able to do this season and the growth he's able to have, um, considering how well he did the second half of, of the last season. 
All right, we're talking to Jordan Gusky for a few more minutes here on RCST. All right, I gotta I gotta ask you some questions. Our our previous guest who came on and worked for the Topeka Capital Journal, Matt Galloway, used to do a movie review with us. So I have some questions to compare and contrast you to Matt Galloway. First of all, do you like movies? Yes, yes, I, I do like movies. What is your favorite movie of all time? You can give me um, anything recently or of all time. Um, I guess one that comes to mind uh, recently is uh, the um, the Dark Knight. The that Batman movie, mm-hmm. Dark Knight, is pretty good. Um, I don't know. I like the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, man, that's tough of all time. Um, I like Spotlight. That's more of a journalism movie, though. Um, Spotlight's good. All the President's Men, also a really good one. Yeah, I don't know. those are the ones that come to head, uh, my head right now. I'm sure there are others though, that don't leave me off uh, that I like a lot too. So you got you have a, a good movie knowledge. So have you seen Shawshank Redemption? No, I have not seen Shawshank. Oh Redemption. no. Okay, this is starting again. Um, is there anything that you don't have maybe much knowledge of, but would like to? Whether it's TV, movies, music, history, books, I don't know anything. Yeah, I think um, music because I think I'm I'm like I'm good if like you play a song like I'll know a song, but I can't. I'm terrible at naming like album names or like tying a song to a specific artist. So I think uh, my music knowledge could definitely you know be better than it is right now. Okay, we might start testing you on that. Uh, do you, Do you have a certain genre of music that uh, you most listen to, or, or one that you want to get more into? Um, you know, I, I used to, you know, growing up to listen to more like hip hop and, and, and rock type stuff, but for whatever reason, I've started listening to country more. I'm really not sure why, um, but <laughs> so I'm, I think I'm a little bit more spread out than I used to be. Um, but I think really, I think rock and hip hop is, you know, sort of where my roots are uh, in that. Okay. Last one I have for you. Have you ever tried oysters? No, I, I've never tried oysters. I'm not sure I want to try oysters, but um, I guess maybe someone could change my mind on that. There are more similarities here than I was expecting to have. He is Jordan Gusky. You can check out all his work in the Topeka Capital Journal. Jordan, thank you so much for the time, and uh, hopefully can have you on again down the line here. Yeah, for sure, man. All right, that's Jordan Gusky of the Topeka Capital Journal joining us. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.